Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Network listeners, this is Bruce Nealand, host of Pharmacy Crossroads, with a shout out to Medela Springs Healthcare. This remarkable new company has developed some unique, professionally recommended OTC products, products you can stock and recommend with confidence. Check them out at medellasprings.com. That's Medella. M-E-D-E-L-L-A, medellasprings.com. Thank you. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome again to Occupation Station. I'm Diane Donato, and our guest today, we are so happy to have with us Dr. Greg Dewey, the president of Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Dr. Dewey, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Diana. As always, uh, it's a pleasure to come and talk to you. And been on the show a number of times, and I've always enjoyed the conversation. I think we have a few things to get to today, but we will start, though. We'll stay focused and start by talking about something that you brought to us, a concept that we need to know more about. It's called social entrepreneurship. And I guess first thing we need you to do is help define what that concept sure. is. So social entrepreneurship is something that people have talked about for a couple of decades now. And what it is, is about constructing businesses that are designed to create social capital as opposed to financial capital. So these are organizations that are for social good, to improve society, but they are businesses so that they have to have a business model that makes them sustainable. When we think of social entrepreneurship, we often think of things in third world countries where people use simple technologies to try to create some kind of service, but uh, social entrepreneurship is important for America as well, because we do have complex situations where a business needs to be developed to be sustainable. We, we see we have a lot of community-based organizations throughout the country that are very much hand-to-mouth organizations, and what they need is a, is a good business plan. I think that it is time for us to really seriously look at social entrepreneurship within the country as well. It's not just a third world sort of thing like uh, microfinance in India or, or some of the water projects in Africa. It's something we need to look at in America. In a way, that's what I view that we have done with our student-operated pharmacies. We have put those pharmacies in a pharmacy desert in Hamilton Hill in Schenectady. There's no pharmacies in that region. In Arbor Hill in Albany, there are no pharmacies. There are true a pharmacy desert, and we created sustainable businesses to social for the social good of serving those communities, so the pharmacy services. And, and I think we need to build on those ideas and elaborate on those. What is the motivation behind social entrepreneurship? The motivation at the community organization level, these community-based organizations, they are motivated to be able to provide services to the community that 
they can sustain without continual philanthropy. Many of our community-based organizations live off philanthropy. With social entrepreneurship, what you do is you, you have a business model that allows you to bring in revenue to be independent of philanthropy so that you can operate in your community. You can do provide those good services to the community and not have to worry about living off of philanthropy. And one of the big examples that struck me when I first started thinking about uh, social entrepreneurship, there was Father Greg Boyle in Los Angeles created something called Homeboy Industries, which was a bakery that he got gang members running this bakery, and they used the proceeds from the bakery to do a lot of social good in these blighted uh, areas of Los Angeles. So that was a great example of creating a, a business that would then feed into a public service. It's good to see examples where it's actually worked. Was there an original school of thought where this came from, or how did the concept originate? That is a good question. I, I think the concept was mostly a third world concept. It was a concept of you, you have these developing nations that do not have a lot of resources, and, and yet they are in need of very simple things like water in Africa, basic health services. The example of India, the microfinance thing was a very successful social entrepreneurship in India where, you know, just loaning people small amounts of money and, and creating this microfinance model. So I, they were predominantly third world origins. And it's sort of like, well, we in the West are more sophisticated than that. We have more resources than that. But over time, it has expanded. And, and the thing is, if you look at America, we have a large area of medically underserved areas. And this is a very big concern of mine. These medically underserved areas, and Albany has is one of them. New York State has probably about 30 or 40 areas that the government has designated as medically underserved, one of the wealthier states, and they, they're going to grow. And here we have some of the most sophisticated medical technology. We have the practice of medicine in America is very innovative, but we cannot provide basic services, primary care services. So there's a real need to, to think outside the box and to create industries that have served social goods. So my idea is that academia can play a role here, that there is a very special role for academia to step in and be social entrepreneurs. And if you think of our professional schools, our professional schools have a lot of high-end talent, professional talent, that it's fine to use it on academic resource, but that talent can be used to create these enterprises for social good. That's my motivation there. It's interesting, as you point out, that Albany is medically underserved and has problems with poverty, as many other communities do. And yet, if you look at Albany, it's college-rich, the number of institutions there. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about the role for higher education yeah. when it comes to social entrepreneurship. So, so, you know, when it comes to community engagement, I would say, and this is kind of a, an odd thing uh, and a, a kind of a mixed thing, but America got off on the wrong foot because 
the basic drive of higher education goes back to Thomas Jefferson and the founding of the University of Virginia. And he envisioned a college campus. That was the first college campus. The Europeans did not have college campus. And what he envisioned was to remove college from society, remove colleges from the pressure of society. It was be this, this almost monastic cloister where people could think thoughts, clean, clear their minds, and think great thoughts without the, the pressures of society. So when, when Ezra Cornell created Cornell, he picked one of the most remote locations. This trend in, in America was to have academia isolated from society. Well, the problem with that is Thomas Jefferson wanted to educate was a Virginia gentleman. This was for privilege. It was a very sophisticated educational experience. In America, we need to educate people to go into community and do things. And so over time, you know, we still have, we do have a legacy in this country of small colleges in remote locations. But uh, as American education evolved, we got more professional schools, we, we inherited the German tradition of research, and we built larger schools that wanted to, and, and then the drive for engineering schools we built larger schools that wanted to embrace the community stronger. It is a New York uh, story. One of the early strong commitments into community engagement came in the 70s and 80s out of Syracuse University. Uh, Nancy Zipper, who went on to become chancellor, was the, the president of Syracuse, and she pushed an agenda of community engagement. That's an important agenda, and it encounters that tradition of the cloistered campus. It says, no, we want colleges and universities to be in the community. They want to be doing things in the community. And so you got a trend for maybe the last 20 years of an increased emphasis on community engagement. So students, undergraduate students will will go out and they'll have a community service component in their curriculum. And that, that's well and good, and that provides some things. Often it's things like Habitat for Humanity or Clean Up the Highway or things like that. What I refer to those as splash events. What I'm arguing is professional school can take that community engagement to an entirely another level because of their level of expertise, their level of sophistication, a law school, a medical school, pharmacy school. If we want to become community engaged, we can do it at a much more sophisticated level, and that's social entrepreneurship, that we can create these ventures for social good using the talent of our faculty. And that's the vision for social entrepreneurship in academia community engagement on steroids in a way. We're talking with Dr. Greg Dewey, the president of Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. And so this is not just a philosophical discussion for you. You no. mentioned it briefly, the student-run pharmacies. Let's talk a little bit about that, how you have actually turned this into a catalyst for the good for the community. The student-owned pharmacies have several goals. Let's talk about how you got them set up, what they're doing, right. and, and what they're achieving. So one of the things I realized early on, you know, I'm not a pharmacist, and, and maybe that was good because I thought of things that were discounted, but it occurred to me, and I said, medical schools have hospitals. 
pharmacy schools don't have pharmacies. Why not? That seems like a natural extension. And so I said, why don't we have a pharmacy? Why don't we start running our own pharmacy? Think of all the practical skills that we could have if we ran our own pharmacy. They'd learn the back office functions. They'd learn direct-to-patient interactions. It would be a, it could be a very rich experience for the student. So I went out and started talking to people. Why don't we run a pharmacy? And and the answer was, well, you have to understand that most of our alumni work in retail and independent pharmacies in the region. And if you ran a pharmacy, you'd be taking business away from your alumni. That would cause an uproar. And I said, well, if we ran a pharmacy in a medically underserved area, we're not taking anyone's business because no one's there doing business. And not only that, our students would learn cultural competency required to operate in those areas. We would do, be doing a public good. We would be providing a service where, and we're not in anyone's competitive space. That was the idea I sold, and the alumni loved that idea. When we started those two pharmacies, we started one in Schenectady and and one in Albany, there were pharmacies nearby. Those pharmacies have disappeared. Our goal was never to be the last man standing, but we almost are. And that's a sad testimony to uh, the issues with pharmacy deserts. But it also shows the need for that. When I uh, started those pharmacies, I was very cognizant of moving into an area, an underserved area, where we did not have any knowledge of the population. We did not necessarily have the cultural competency. So I brought community organizations together, I would call it the community council. We brought the community council together of people that work on the streets in that area. And we we brought them together and say, look, we're not a bunch of college do-gooders or we're not a, a bunch of people that think we know better and like this is how we do it. We want to do it in, in a uh, sensitive way, in a, in a way of partnership. And when I brought that community council together, it was an amazing, it's like the first time they had talked to each other. These are all people in the trenches working in their communities, doing different things, but they never were coordinated in any way. And, and there's actually a role for that, that level of coordination. But they were very helpful, and they were instrumental in helping us get into those communities, help us navigate that so we did not look like a bunch of college do-gooders that knew more than everyone else, but we moved in as being a partner. And that was very gratifying that we were able to do that. The community-based organizations really were, they were wonderful. They greeted us with open arms. So we started the pharmacy at the federally qualified health center called Hometown Health in Schenectady. That was a num- uh, number one. They're called FQHCs, which their mission is to serve underserved communities. There are two of them in the capital region, and we do pharmacy services for both of those. That partnership with the FQHCs was very significant, and it really helped us jumpstart the whole operations. I want to backtrack just a little bit because you started out by saying that when you initially were going into these communities, there was concern that you were there to replace them. The 
pharmacies that were there. And then you said, in effect, you wound up being the last one standing. But that's not because you appeared there. That's not why those pharmacies moved out. It has a lot to do with things like reimbursement rates and, and a multiple of other things. And if you weren't there... There would be nobody there right now. Exactly. That's right. It's not like we pushed them out of business. We operated in a different model, and this goes back to the social entrepreneurship model, is our goal was not to make as much money as we could. Our goal is to educate the students. We're an educational institution. So our intent was to be able to operate those pharmacies without having to subsidize them. But we were not looking for a profit margin. If you look at a retail, a standard retail pharmacy, that's not good enough for them. Break-even is not good enough. So they have to have a fixed margin or they're not going to operate. And that's what you see, that they don't operate. You look at independence, independence struggle just because of the workload, the reimbursement. There's a lot of pressure on independence. I have a labor force of students that helps me, right? So I have a basically a different business model that allows us to do this. And what do the students get in return? You know, the students find it a very gratifying experience. They get that sort of personal satisfaction of working with a population in need. They get to see that little efforts means a lot to this population. And they gain a deeper appreciation for that. And that's something that they don't necessarily see. You know, our students go on rotations their fourth year, their final year. They'll be in a hospital. They'll be in a retail. But they don't get necessarily that that face-to-face kind of interaction that you, you get. And one thing, that counseling component increasingly is important for pharmacists to learn how to do, learn how to be good counselors, and it gives them that. The students, you know, there's always a group of students that do it for the good of the community, right? That's a long history in pharmacy. Independent pharmacists have always been a mainstay of their little towns. They're sort of part of the social fabric. And they say people will go to a pharmacist and ask them for advice before they go to their provider, right? And so that's part of the history of pharmacy. And and in a way, we're getting a little bit back to that where people can, you know, have that direct counseling component. It's not just dispensing drugs. I think it's been very gratifying for them. And the early ones, they saw the see that see that sort of grow from the ground up we start with four bare walls and we're operational in a short period of time that's not everyone saw that but the early ones saw that amazing growth of that. Uh, Dr. Dewey, it's very clear that one of your greatest loves has been the student-run pharmacies. Could you speak a little bit more about overall professional schools entering the space of doing social good? Yeah, I, I feel that as higher ed progresses, it's been criticized. It's been criticized for its lack of relevancy. It's been criticized for not providing adequate workforce skills of, of the new graduates. And again, you, we want to break that traditional image of the ivy tower on the hill that's separate from the community. I think it's important that professional schools get more involved in their communities, and they can get involved in their communities via these 
social entrepreneurship ventures. And this, they offer a number of great advantages. First of all, it gets the students seen at grassroots level what are the problems in the communities and how, and how they can help. That's an incredible experience for the student. But academia moving into a community in a role like that, it has a level of respect and it can play a role. It can play a role, uh, I would say, almost as a neutral catalyst. It can appear to be apolitical. It can do things that a for-profit may not be able to do, a, a federal agency may not be able to do, or a, a government agency, county agency. So it, there's a space there to operate, provided it doesn't have a profit motive. It gives you a certain legitimacy and neutrality. And that's where the social entrepreneurship comes in. You're coming in to create social capital, to give your students a better experience. You're not coming in to grab a profit or a political agenda. And the other thing is that the professional schools have that high level faculty expertise to execute that. So to my mind, this is a natural space for American higher ed, the professional schools, to move in, go in and do, get into those communities and create projects within the communities that are sustainable. That it's not a handout, it's not philanthropy, it's an organized business plan to go in and do something. It creates great student experience, a great reputational enhancement for the college, and it, it does community good. So I, I feel strongly about that direction. And if I were here another eight years, I certainly would, would continue moving along in, in those lines. Dr. Greg Dewey has announced that this will be his last year serving as a president at ACPHS. Is this kind of social entrepreneurship project is this one of the things that you're the most proud of in your time there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it is. It is. You know, and it's not like I had the idea ahead of time, like, I'm going to go in Albany, I'm going to do this. It's sort of something that grew organically. But it was an idea that caught fire and from sort of inception to execution maybe was a two-year period of time. Being an academic, academics have idea. They're idea people. But to go from idea to implementation is always very difficult. And I remember shortly after we opened the pharmacy in Schenectady, walking in into the—I I just was driving by. I said, I'm just going to pop in and look and see what's going on. And there was—pharmacy was open— there was a woman with a infant in her arms and a toddler at her feet waiting to be served. There was a guy in a walker, older gentleman in a walker. And I, I have to say, I almost teared up. I mean, I was like, this, this was what we were trying to do. And in a short period of time, we were able to do it. That was very gratifying. That was one of the more gratifying moments, I, I think, in my, in my career here. In eight years, you really accomplished a lot. Are there any other things that we maybe should touch on, things that you, yeah. you really feel very strongly about? Yeah, so the two other little ventures were, or maybe a little big, uh, one is the collaboratory, and the collaboratory was about the pharmacies and in the FQHCs is really about getting pharmacists 
and medical folks together working as a medical team. And with the collaboratory, we wanted to merge social services with pharmacy services. So that's pharmacists and social workers working together. The social workers can get into those homes, can find out about medication adherence, uh, help us manage medication. They can be the direct line, bring it back, and our pharmacists then work on people's medication. There's a lot of problems with understanding medication, getting proper reimbursement, understanding the importance of staying on adherence. And so that combination of social work and pharmacy is a unique model. And to think of pharmacists working on a team with social workers, that's like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, that's a whole... People have talked about medical teams for a long time, but interface between medical teams and social work teams is an important interface. I'm very proud of that collaboratory effort. The other big effort was the uh, Center for Biopharmaceutical Education and Training, and that is driven by the growth of biologics, um, biopharmaceuticals in the pharmaceutical industry. It's explosive, and biopharmaceutical industry had not seen any more success than they did in the COVID era. The ability to produce vaccines so quickly and so many is is a testimony to American ingenuity and innovation. Moderna had never produced a single drug in its career. It was a clinical development company. In the space of a year, it manufactured 800,000, uh, 800 million vaccines. AstraZeneca created a billion vaccines, sold them at cost. Story goes on and on. But that biopharmaceutical sector, as opposed to the small molecules sector, is growing in the pharmaceutical industry. It is literally going to be designer drugs that can be manufactured for subpopulation. It has enormous potential, and it has enormous workforce needs. So my vision for that is pharmacists can play a role in the biopharmaceutical industry. And I know because I see, our, I see alumni that have gone into the pharmaceutical industry and been very successful. So I know they can do it, and they've done it without our help. And I'm like, well, if we help them, what is the possibility? So we want to join the, the gateway to the pharmaceutical industry for pharmacists. And what, that's what the center is all about, is that gateway. But it's also about the promise of, of biologics. And, and just they are very efficacious drugs that require low doses use, which means there's low side effects. So they're very much the drug of the future. It's, it's an exciting time for the industry. And to your credit, before the rest of us knew how great the need was going to be with the pandemic, uh, this yeah. is something that you already were working on. We were on, talking obviously. about before the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Before the pandemic, yes. But just the vaccines alone is is a great example of, of a biopharmaceutical. But most of the most of the anti-inflammatory drugs are biopharmaceuticals. Most of the latest oncogenic drugs are biopharmaceuticals. It has a wide range of therapeutic uses, and and you're seeing companies like Regeneron. They're just growing at incredible paces, and their biggest hurdle is human resources. 
They need folks to come in there. And so there's a huge opportunity to fill this gap. So we look at areas where retail pharmacy is shrinking, other areas are challenged, and here's an area where the workforce need is enormous. And uh, you know, I'll tell you a story. Uh, we put this thing on our web. We're going to start an industrial microbiology course at thing. Within a week, these two guys from Eli Lilly saw that on our web and said, can we fly out and talk to you? And they flew out in, in, in a week. And they said, can we hire any of your students? And it was in the spring. And so we're like, well, we came, all our students are out on internships. Well, we have this young woman. He's, she's a sophomore. She doesn't have a lot of experience. Maybe you should go. And, and so, they, yeah, so they took her, right? And she's like, the faculty were worried, like, well, she's a New York State girl. I mean, how is she going to handle Indianapolis? Like, what? Well, Indianapolis is not, you know, not, not all that different than maybe Rochester or, or Syracuse, right? And uh, so she went, and she just knocked their socks off, right? She just knocked their socks off. They brought her back for the next year. I just— um, I just talked to her last night at her graduation, and, and she's going back to Lily for, for the job. The, and they want more of that. All these Regeneron wants more. Curia used to be AMRI. They want talent, and they're just grabbing these students that come through this. I'm sure nothing pleases you more. Yeah. Dr. Dewey, you're going to be so missed at the college. I am sure of that. Can you tell us a little bit about what's next for you? Well, I, um, you know, when I said I was going to retire, I had someone call me up and says, are you sick? <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with you? Tell me you're not sick. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not sick. I'm just ready to retire. I strongly feel that two things. One is the next generation needs a chance to be a leader, right? And being a baby boomer, I'm very conscious of baby boomers occupying a lot, lot of leadership roles, and you need to, at some point, let the next generation move in. The other thing is, it sounds trite, but I want to spend more time with my family. Everyone says, Are you really? <laughs> you know, everyone says that, but I want to be nearer my grandchildren, and I want some time to reflect on things and uh, maybe do some writing. And people say, you need to have a plan when you retire? Well, I don't have a plan. And I don't have a plan because I want to protect my time initially. Maybe I'll come up with a plan later. I also feel like you have to keep learning. So I'm uh, teaching myself certain things. I'm very interested in human population genetics. So I'm teaching myself human population genetics, which is kind of odd thing to do, but uh, it's, it's very stimulating. Uh, and I have some writing projects. I, I'm sure I can fill my time. I'm sure you can too. It will, though, be very, very different without you. I have to say personally, it has been an honor any uh -huh. of the times that I've been able to be with you. I greatly appreciate your perspective on things, and it's been wonderful well, to work with you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Diane. I appreciate that. <laughs> Dr. Greg Dewey, President of Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, thank you so much for being our guest today on yeah. Occupation Station. Thank you. For more information or to schedule a tour, visit acphs.edu. You can tune in to all of our informative stories at acphs.edu forward slash podcast. Each podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeart giving you the opportunity to listen from a mobile device. Mark Occupation Station as a favorite, and you'll receive push notifications as soon as we publish something new.
Occupation Station is also a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, the largest podcast content directory dedicated to the business and profession of pharmacy.